hold hands and close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to the Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brennan Storer. I'm Paul Bestel. And this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 181, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. Paul, my friend, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. We are currently having a February heat wave. Boy, that doesn't fill me with existential dread in the slightest. <laughs> yeah. Everything's fine. Nothing to worry about here. It's only double the normal temperature for this time of year. Cool. Cool, cool. Yeah. Well, actually, no, it's not cool. It's not cool. <laughs> no, no, it is most assuredly not cool. It is, it is not cool in any uh, meaning of the word. It is just bad. Well, despite uh, living through the slow motion apocalypse and, and still apparently having to go to work, I am excited about this episode today because this is the first in what is going to be a three episode series where we tell the stories of an author who, for whom I have a huge amount of respect and who is essentially... Uh, as you like to joke, a co-host on Mysteries and Monsters, and that is Ruth Roper Wild. <laughs> and Ruth is a prolific author of British ghost stories, and, and I say author, researcher. Her books, These Haunted Times, are massive, massive treasure troves of first-person accounts of hauntings in England, modern hauntings, some historical stuff as well, but I, I don't think there's a better archive of the current state of haunting in England. I, I really don't. Like, I mean, her books are, they're lengthy and they, there's what, uh, the fifth volume, was it fourth or fifth volume just came out? The fourth volume of These Haunted Times that just came out just before Christmas. Yeah. So it's it just an incredible resource. And I am delighted to be able to share some of Ruth's stories on these upcoming shows. We're going to do a, a general episode today. In two weeks time, episode 182 will be about ghost monks. And then we will go from there and say we'll be doing a minimum of three episodes based on Ruth's work. And after that, we'll actually be talking to Ruth on Talk Spooky to Me. And I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. And I'm very much looking forward to telling Ruth's stories and diving into your vast knowledge of the uh, weirdness that is Paranormal England. First, we got to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons. You are the Branston Pickle to our cheese sandwich, which is to say that without you, we'd still be here, but we would just lack the thing that takes us to the next level. And while of course we'd like to thank all our patrons, we would especially like to thank our latest patrons. They are... Sue Skinzia. Vicky Soy. Daniel McGowan. The Elijah Burnett Prime. Michelle Reason. And Dakota. Guys, thank you so, so much. We could not do this without our patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers. Putting together a podcast is a surprising amount of work. And this is our job. Uh, me especially. I do this full time. And while everyone who downloads the Ghost Story Guys helps make us who we are, the people who are able to pay us to do the job we do are the truly MVPs because you guys allow us to continue. And if you want to join that team, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghost story guys and what we'll tell you at the end of the show about all the cool stuff you get we will say for a dollar a month we get an ad free feed and who doesn't want that ads suck and you also get to sleep secure on the knowledge you helped a couple of schmucks like us 
do what we love to do. And that is deeply appreciated. Again, if you want to join the team, head to patreon.com slash guys, or sign up to GSG Premium via Apple Podcasts. One last thing, shout out to our composer, Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and composer Harper Smith. You can find more from Harper at rainydaysforghosts.bandcamp.com or by searching for Rainy Days for Ghosts or Street Witch on streaming platforms everywhere. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with the great British haunt off. This story comes from Flittick in Bedfordshire, the Ridgeway. I met this next witness over coffee in the nearby market town of Amphill, in a small and crowded coffee shop over hot chocolate and crumpets. It seemed slightly incongruous to be talking about ghosts in such a mundane setting, but then again, so many paranormal encounters do take place in otherwise utterly mundane settings. So perhaps it was fitting. Our witness, a well-spoken lady who had brought with her a helpful folder of photographs of the house, explained to me that she and her husband had bought the house in the short street called The Ridgeway, in Flittick, as newlyweds, with the intention of making it their first family home. It was the 1970s, and they had moved from their first home, a flat, into this wonderfully spacious old house, most of which had been built in the 1860s. Originally, it would have been a typical double-fronted house with the entry door in the middle of the front facade, flanked by spacious windows into probably a lounge and drawing room. It had a basement area as well. At the time when it was built, it would actually have stood in the small hamlet of Dannel End, which has long since been forgotten and subsumed into the small town of Flittick, and in its day it would have been quite an imposing property for its location, with attendant outbuildings and probably some land where now there are other houses and buildings crowding around. By the time the young couple bought it, the property had been added to numerous times over the years, including a large extension on one side built in the 1920s. It had seen various incarnations over the decades, including a period as a shop during the Second World War. It was in quite a sad state of repair when they made the purchase, and they had high plans of how they would renovate it to turn it into the spacious home they envisaged starting their family in. When they moved in, they were thrilled at how much space they suddenly owned, and decided that this would make it easier to renovate since they could work room by room thus keeping the mess and clutter associated with renovation confined to distinct areas whilst they lived in other rooms. They decided to start with one of the beautiful front rooms, stripping it completely bare of all fixtures and fittings, and then strip the walls right back to the original plaster. They were excited to be planning the lovely dining room it would become. They had not been long in the house when the first instance occurred. They had just finished stripping out the front room and had retired for the night to their bedroom, which was directly above the room they were working on. No sooner had they settled into bed, tired from the day's labor, when they were startled back into full wakefulness by the sound of an almighty crash from the room directly below them. Shooting out of bed, the young couple were thoroughly alarmed, wondering what on earth could have toppled over. The sound was as if some heavy item of furniture had fallen. As they hurriedly made their way downstairs to investigate, they both agreed that the sound had definitely seemed to emanate from the room below theirs, the room they had just stripped bare of any and all furniture. They could find nothing disturbed in the bare dining room to be, so in puzzlement they widened their search to the rest of the house, and eventually even outside, 
where they found the night air still, quiet, and undisturbed by any commotion. They could not think of any explanation for the loud noise which had made them bolt out of bed. Giving up, they retired for the rest of the night and largely forgot about the incident. The next night, our witness was making her way up the stairs intending to head to the bathroom and had reached as far as the half landing when she thought she saw a shadow cross the full landing above her and go into one of the bedrooms. Knowing that no one else was upstairs, she tried to rationalize it, assuring herself it must have been a cloud shadow momentarily darkening the windows from outside and causing her to think she had seen a shadow. But in reality, deep down, she knew that something had just moved in the periphery of her vision. Over the next few weeks, she became increasingly aware that the staircase always felt like it had a presence on it, a presence that was carefully watching her come and go, and which left her feeling slightly uneasy. On more than one occasion, she thought she saw the same shadow moving in the periphery of her vision as she ascended, almost as if someone was deliberately moving out of her line of sight. Eventually, on one particular day, she decided enough was enough and stopped stock still on the half landing. Feeling slightly daft, but at the same time feeling it was the right thing to do, she spoke out loud to what she now felt was a presence they were sharing the house with. She told it that there was nothing for it to be worried about, that although they were making a lot of changes in the house, they were just renovating it so it could become a family home once more, and that they were planning to stay and raise their children there. It seemed to work, because things quieted down after that, and there were no more incidents. Time passed, and in due course, the young couple had their first child, a son, followed 18 months later by their second child, a daughter. Our witness became a stay-at-home mom, as was very much the norm in those days, and found herself with long hours on her hands and only the children and house to occupy her mind. She relied quite heavily, like most young mums, on a network of ladies in the same position who formed friendships and bonds and worked together to raise the children and help one another out. One such young mum became a particularly close friend, and the pair would often spend time in one another's company. Now, our young couple had often commented on a strange cold spot that was in their lounge, just by the sofa and near the door into the room. It was a distinct column of chilled air, about a foot or so in diameter, and rising from floor to ceiling in a noticeable block, which you could actually feel by passing your hands through it. The column of cold air never wavered or moved, and the young husband had often tried to bring all his logic to bear on it and try to find what the physical cause of it was. Never to any avail. When the friend visited, she commented almost immediately upon this cold spot in the room, confirming that it was a palpable thing and not something the couple were imagining. She then went upstairs to use the bathroom, and when she came back downstairs, tried very delicately to ask about the history of the house and what it had been before harping on the subject until the owner commented to her, You've seen something on the stairs, haven't you? The friend had also noticed the shadow moving, the same as our witness, but when she turned to look fully at it, for a moment she saw a male figure, about five foot six, and seeming to be in his mid-fifties or so. He was wearing a soft cap, dark blue trousers, and an old-looking sports jacket. She said that she could not clearly see him. He was sort of smudged out to look at, so she couldn't really describe his features, but he was gone in an instant. The same friend saw him several more times over the years, but never so clearly as that first time. When their son was about three years old and a happy, chattering toddler, he had an imaginary friend. His friend was called George, 
and the young lad would want George to be allowed to have a place setting at the table next to him, or to be allowed to play with him, in the way small children often do in a phase they go through. The couple didn't think much about it, until one Saturday morning when they were trying to have a rare lie-in. Their baby daughter was still asleep in her room, in her crib, and they could hear their young lad happily playing and chattering away to himself in his room. So they snuggled down for just a few moments of undisturbed peace, a commodity prized above all else by most young parents. Their bliss didn't last long, though, because their son came trotting into the room chattering that he wanted George to come and talk with him. Except he was holding his arm up in the air as if holding the hand of an adult man and tugging as if trying to pull a reluctant adult to follow with him. The young husband was utterly horrified at the sight of his baby son apparently conversing with an invisible male adult and without thinking, jumped out of bed, snatched his young son up in his arms, and slammed the bedroom door shut on George, only then realizing his mistake and crying out, Oh my God, the baby! His wife was the one who got out of bed and went to calmly retrieve their perfectly happy baby daughter from the crib, but she said her husband remained shaken by the incident for some time, because the idea of the son having an imaginary play friend was one thing, but for that friend to turn out to be an adult male when they knew an adult male ghost had been seen in their house, was just too much for him, and not something he's ever really wanted to discuss since. After that incident, they lived there for another three years, but George seemed to go away, and the shadows were hardly ever seen, although the cold column in the lounge remained. Their cat continued to react to that throughout the time they lived there, carefully skirting round it and sometimes staring at it and hissing with her fur fluffed up. The very last time anything happened was shortly after they'd put the house on the market and were getting ready to pack up and leave. She caught a glimpse of George one last time on the stairs, looking slightly distressed. It was the clearest she had ever actually seen him, but even then his colors were sort of muted, and again there was the smudging effect, meaning it wasn't like looking clearly at someone, so that her sense of him looking distressed was more of a feeling than something visual. She spoke out loud to him reassuring him that another family were moving in and the house would go on and he would be all right to stay there. she left with a feeling that her words had given the spirit a sense of calm. All right, so that was one story, the, the very first of our Ruth Roper Wild stories. And again, I love how much she's managed to capture there. Yeah, Ruth always manages to uh, pack any sort of encounter. Some of the, the longer ones in her books are fascinating because of the detail included in them. Yeah, and, and what I, I, I really love the fact that this happened in a coffee shop, because most of the interviews I did for Strange happened in coffee shops. I remember talking to this one woman, and we had, by the end of our conversation, emptied every table around us. <laughs> now, I, I looked up Flittick to see what other stories there were from around there, and I assume you're aware of, of the story of, of Flittick Manor. Yes, it's famously because it featured on the British paranormal television show Strange But True in the 90s which features a rather amusing section on uh, guests being chased out of the hotel by certain ghosts. Oh, really? I saw that on YouTube, but I didn't have a chance to watch yeah. it. Some brilliant acting. 90s TV acting? <laughs> or, uh, yes, yeah. using real people playing themselves and actors. Oh, man, that's just like that Clint Eastwood movie about the train. I, I'm sure it went as well. <laughs> but yeah, it's a great show. It's one of those lost paranormal shows because it's never been released on DVD or Blu-ray or anything. So the I was going to say that I don't recognize the name at all. It was massive as well. It was like primetime, really? primetime TV, Friday, Saturday nights. They even did a live UFO show, one bit, four seasons. Hmm. Had some, I'll be damned. Had some brilliant, 
brilliant stories and some brilliant witnesses on it. Did an episode on the Ghost Plains here in Sheffield and uh, Stocksbridge, which is hilarious because they used a local fake psychic as, as one of the uh, key experts on it, driving about in a souped-up mini-metro. Oh, boy. <laughs> Yikes. Somebody said she's as psychic as a brick, that woman. <laughs> but yes, Flitick is, uh, yeah, notorious. So notorious, in fact, that uh, I discovered that uh, Higgy Pop had done a recap on an episode of Celebrity Help My House is Haunted. Well, it's a bit of a stretch to use the word celebrity in regards to that particular person, but yes. Well, I was going to say because the celebrity quote in question was a cast member from Geordie Shore, which was (laughs) the abomination that you guys responded with after America produced Jersey Shore. Yeah, yeah, they were famously chased out of Sheffield when they tried filming here. Really? Yeah, loads of people turned up and started throwing beer all over them. (laughs) <laughs> I think they're down well at all. That's amazing. Yeah. Get home, you dirty buggers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, they were right, because that show not only was, was terrible in its own right, but it gave birth to The Only Way is Essex, which is possibly more frightening than anything we've ever talked about on the show. You're not wrong. We were once having a few drinks at my house, and I said to my mate, you stay here, buddy, I'm just going nip, to nip to the local off-license and get some uh, more beer for us. And I disappeared. And when I came back, he was sat in the city and he was shaking a bit. And he went, I don't understand this program. I don't, I don't understand it. What, what, what is it? Is it real? Is it real? And it was the only way is Essex. And I oh, went, no. oh, man, just, just turn it off. It's all right. Come on. And he was, he was okay after a drink. But the damage is done by that point. Yeah. And it, it, uh, it desensitized him so much. He now works for the CID. Oh, <laughs> Wait, so you're going to have to explain that because, because most of our listeners are not going to understand the reference. Uh, it's a uh, senior division of the police force. He's already seen the worst crime perpetrated on the British people, so everything after that's a step down. Yeah. Being CID in South Yorkshire is easy after that. that I believe yeah. it. He's hunting down fake tan salons and all sorts. <laughs> well, he's lucky one of them didn't crawl out of the TV like the little girl from The Ring. Well, but I'd have probably watched it if it did that. <laughs> oh, man. That's, uh, yeah, it's kind of remarkable. I, I admit, I watched Jersey Shore when it first came out. I watched the first season. I'm not proud of this, but I did. I was in my early 20s and I was young and dumb. I did a lot of dumb shit back then, Paul. But uh, when I saw The Only Way is Essex, which looked like, I can't even describe it. It looked like animate mummies running around on, in, uh, in England. I just felt so bad for the crimes perpetrated upon you by our culture. Yep. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the, the, the granddaddy of them all, which was MTV's, was it the real thing? Oh, the real world. Real world. world. Yeah. yeah. Back in the early 90s when, when they occasionally stopped showing music, and now you'll be shocked to see if they show any music on MTV. It's just not the channel it was. So it's unbelievable. People still make music videos, I'm shocked to discover, but it, it's not the way it was. You know, no one's given Michael Bay millions of dollars to crash airplanes through his music videos anymore. <laughs> I'm surprised because every, every major artist makes music videos, but they're all just on YouTube and they get millions and millions and millions of views. So it makes you wonder why a channel has leapt from the thing that made it the international behemoth that it became to, to basically just put wall-to-wall reality television on that hardly anybody watches. I genuinely don't know. I, I think there's probably some kind of cost-saving measure in there, because I know that reality television is cheap, and people will watch it because people have no taste. I don't know. 
It's, it's baffling, though, because like you said, there, there's clearly an appetite for music videos. But I guess maybe because now YouTube exists, so you don't need it. I don't know. I go back and forth on that. I go back and forth on whether or not, you know, sort of linear programming is ever going to become, a, is ever going to you know, like be a thing again. Yeah, I, I've never subscribed to that. I, I've, I always thought that was the most soul crushing thing ever. What's that? Just that, like whatever's on TV is what you yeah. watch? Yeah, I'd just go in a garden and scream for four hours. <laughs> you know? God, no. I think that's where you lose yourself. You, you, that's when you discover you're a reader or you, like, you love music because you can just disappear. That's why so many teenagers bugger off into their own bedrooms so they don't have to watch crap, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Primetime Saturday night on ITV, Beverly Hills 90210. You'd have that and Gladiators and Baywatch. Get me to the pub. <laughs> the Ancient House in Ipswich, Suffolk. The Ancient House is an astonishing looking building on the Butter Market in Ipswich. It has an ornately carved frontage with overhanging upper stories and curved upper bay windows. Engraved on the front in bright heraldic colours is the Royal Coat of Arms, Dewey Mondois. It's a grade one listed building dating from the 1400s and is sometimes also referred to as Sparrow's House after a former owner. It's currently a shop housing the business Lakeland who sell kitchenware, innovative gadgets and cooking utensils. The building itself has long been rumoured to have a ghost and it's said that things move about in the shop sometimes. In 1997, Staff at the store experienced a strange series of happenings with flowers being inexplicably rearranged and a staff member getting locked in the cellar until the door suddenly burst open without any aid. When I asked locally if anyone knew anything of the ghost, I got some interesting responses. Three people said they'd never experienced anything there. One lady said the property was definitely not haunted, but the tea shop nearby in St Stephen's Lane is as is a tomb embedded in the wall of St. Stephen's Church. Two people had said that they'd felt something whilst visiting. One lady described it as just a feeling that something was present. Another said in one of the rooms upstairs that she felt a presence and that she'd been told Charles Dickens once visited the property. One lady said that she worked there for her first job as an office junior in the 1970s. She said that she herself had never experienced anything paranormal well, the statue of King Charles, which was kept in the attic rooms at that time, used to give her the creeps. She'd also heard that some of the older employees were chatting about the haunting, and they were sure it was real. One lady recalled that the original legend she was told, that there was once a married couple living in the house, many long years ago, whose surname also happened to be Lakeland, although no relation to the current shop name. Apparently the couple had a contemps in the street outside their house one day, and the wife Mary was heard to scream at her husband in a fit of rage, I wish you were dead. Unfortunately for her, the husband did in fact die a few days later, and so the good townspeople decided that Mary must be in fact a witch, and took her up to Rushmere Heath to be burned at the stake. A little digging shows that Matthew Hopkins, the witchfinder general, did in fact try court there, and then convict a Mary Lakeland of witchcraft in Ipswich, and had her burned at the stake on Tuesday the 9th of September, 1645. She was the wife of the town barber, and was said to have admitted murdering her husband. In addition, 
she confessed to causing the death of a man who could not repay a loan she had made him, and murdering the maid of one Mrs. Jennings, who had sent the poor hapless maid to Mary to ask for the repayment of a loan Mrs. Jennings had made. She'd also admitted to sinking a ship and causing a man to suffer a wasting illness after making a pact with the devil and his demons. Contrary to popular belief, it was actually very rare for witches to be burnt at the stake, but since Mary was being convicted of murder, her crime came under the punishment rules for petty treason. Ah, the halcyon days of Matthew Hopkin. All I know about the Witchfinder General comes from the Vincent Price movie, The Witchfinder General. Yeah, it tones it down a bit, to be fair. That is incredible to me, because I wanted to crack his head open with a rock. <laughs> yeah, Hopkins was batshit crazy. Can you expand on that a little bit for our listeners? Maybe also explain to them who Matthew Hopkins was? Yeah, so obviously at this, over the previous 50 years, the United Kingdom had found itself embroiled in a belief that witches were everywhere, thanks to James I, another nutter, um, <laughs> who was convinced that witches were everywhere to the point that, um, you know, they, they created all kinds of horrible punishments for people and changed the rules of what torture was and things, you know, like making people walk for 24 hours because it wasn't classed as a punishment. It wasn't classed as torture because it was just a normal thing. But you would keep somebody walking and walking and walking and walking and walking until they collapsed. Um, you know, things like making them sit down for a week. You know, really strange things. But if done, people go, oh, sitting down, how bad can it be? But sitting down, you, you can't move. So you basically defecate all over yourself and you, you can't, you know, you're sweating and you're sat in the same clothes and you're being harassed day after day, hour after hour by people saying, tell us, tell us why you've done it, tell us who you are, and that. So Hopkin was, was essentially given free reign um, during, during the, the sort of bedlam of the English Civil War that was, that was running amok at that particular point. And obviously Hopkin was part of the, the Roundhead movement under Cromwell, so had essentially got carte blanche to do what the hell he wanted. And, and especially, he didn't come up north very often. He, he tended to hang around that kind of southeast of England, so like Suffolk, Norfolk, Essex, Sussex, sort of skirting around London as well, because he, even though he, he had sort of a free reign to do what he wanted, he was very careful to kind of keep himself into the shires, away from major population centres such as London, where more learned people would say, what's this nutter doing here, you know? And so he had, a, he had an army of followers and hangers-on, and essentially any poor bugger who looked at somebody wrong was accused of being a witch, and then Hopkin had turn up and they'd have a trial, you know, ducking stools and all that. And obviously here we didn't burn many witches, we hung them. We hung quite a lot of them. We, we didn't bother for, you know, the burning at the stake. That was very, oh, it was too continental for us. Why, why, why waste good wood when you can just hang them, you know? Um, and, you know, they do mass trials and the like. And, uh, yeah, just nonsense. And, and eventually, Hopkin kind of pushed his power. He, he started getting a bit too big for his own boots. Um, and thankfully, his, uh, his reputation and his influence in the country was diminished greatly within the following five years as we entered the, uh, the Commonwealth of, uh, of Cromwell, where they banned Christmas 
I mean, quite why you'd want anybody to rule the country who banned Christmas. You know, the typical irony, you get rid of a man who believes that he only can answer to God to then get somebody then who wants to ban any idea of fun. <laughs> you know? Um, and so it it just shows you from uh, King Charles being executed in 1649 uh, to his son's return in, in 1660, King Charles II. It, it shows you how the country had gone from absolutely hating the royalty to how cruel and dull life under Cromwell was that they hope they welcomed the, the, the son of, of the former king with open arms to the point that obviously when Charles II returned they dug Cromwell up chopped his head off and stuck it on a spike on the, on the entrance one of the bridges on the entrance to London after he was dead they did this oh yeah of course they did I mean I guess that's one way to, it feels like overkill is what I'm saying <laughs> But yeah, and then obviously we had one of the craziest periods of English history in the 1660s. We had the Great Fire of London, uh, following on from the plague. The King Charles busying himself with numerous uh, special friends, shall we say. <laughs> and the Scots trying to invade. And then the Dutch came. We, we were so sick. By the, the, by the end of the century, we were so sick of the British royal family, we fetched the Dutch in to replace them. So the big question now is, where is the next person coming to replace the English, the, the English royal family? Because it seems like everyone's well and truly sick of them. Oh, well. Uh, there's about a third of the country cares, going on the viewing figures for the coronation. Uh, I, I feel like it's a, it's, a th- it's a third that's getting smaller and smaller every year. It, it, is, it is a strange thing. I've always considered myself a Republican in, in a uh, sort of monarchy sense, not a political sense. I'd just like to clarify that point. <laughs> Not the American political system, folks. Let's be clear. <laughs> the original definition of a Republican, yes. 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 So, um, yeah, I'd have been buggered if I'd have been a footballer. I mean, to say, God save the Queen before every England match, <laughs> I would not have gone down very well. Because if you don't sing the anthem, you're a traitor in, in certain sections of the media. Still. Uh, oh, yeah, that doesn't... I mean, if you kneel in, in certain sections of the media, think you're Satan. So... How yeah. dare you want equal rights? God damn you, sick son of a bitch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, we, we just want you to protest in a quiet, nonviolent way. Not like that. Yeah, because uh, yeah, quietly protesting is always solve things, isn't it? Which actually kind of takes me to uh, an article I found about this, uh, this Mary Lakeland in the East Anglian Times. Uh, and and it, it opens with a quote that I think is really germane to what we were talking about. It's, uh, you wouldn't want to live in Suffolk in the 1640s if you were old poor, the subject of a grudge by neighbors, and flew close to the flame by criticizing the rich and the powerful. So fuck all has changed. 1640, 2024, time is a flat circle, Marty. And there's, an, there's a, a bit in here from a, an author named David Jones, who's written a book called The Ipswich Witch about, about Mary Lakeland. And apparently it sounds like she basically had the temerity to question the ruling religious elite at the time. And that's more or less why she was killed. It has very little to do with any actual crime committed and the fact that she read the book that these guys kept banging on about, the Bible, and threw it back in their faces when they tried to tell everyone how to behave. And they said, oh, you know what we think? We think that's something Satan would do. So uh, I think the best thing to do here is set you on fire. Yeah, he burnt very brightly, Hopkin. It's quite lucky that obviously... There was a lot of disease flying around 
at that particular time. <laughs> so I think I think he didn't even see the king executed. I think he died not long after, about 1647, something like that. In quite quite a horrible way to have, have gone in those days. He died of pulmonary tuberculosis, so he choked to death on his own blood. Hard lines, eh? Yeah, I was going to say, you might argue that uh, maybe, maybe karma is real. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, it was quite notable. He, he, I think there was one particular incident where, where he never returned to the north. There was a trial in Bury in Lancashire. Oh, okay. And uh, essentially the local, the local magistrates were of the impression that if he ever returned to the area, they'd arrest him and hang him. Oh, wow. So it, it just shows you, because I think often... People look back at that period and think that everybody believed in witches and things. And I think it's one of those things that it gets blown out of proportion because these people were so powerful, a lot of them, and a lot of the people that suffered these stupid and heinous crimes against them. Obviously, most, the vast majority of them were women as well. These were, these were people terrified and a lot of people just pointed fingers because they thought, well, if I blame them, they're, they're going to leave me alone. So, yeah, um, ironically, a lot of the methods that Hopkins used and invented were used at Salem 50 years later, especially the stones. It bugs the shit out of me. It really does, because these guys are such transparent grifters, and that's sort of where we're at again, right? We've got all these these fake prophets, all these bullshit artists who use the guise of really anything. You've got people who use the guise of the church, but there are also who use the guise of green causes of goodness and light, and, but it's always, it's always weaponized in order to keep them in power. And it, it bugs the ever-loving shit out of me because they, I hate it when powerful people pretend to be weak or powerless because obviously they're not. And, and like, like, for example, and I know I've, I've bitched about this guy before, but Joe Rogan, I understand some people like him. I don't enjoy his show, whatever. However, the thing that really pisses me off about Joe Rogan, aside from the fact he seeds, he just allows people on his show to say whatever bullshit they want to say without questioning it, because apparently he can't be bothered to do any fucking work, is the fact that he somehow thinks he's the underdog. He'll talk about the mainstream media. Like, motherfucker, you have 12 million listeners a week. You are the mainstream media. You're the mainstreamest of media. What the fuck are you talking about? And that drives me crazy. And that is such a thing that's happening right now, because we have so many people with money and power trying to hide that and trying to kind of rally, rally people around them to pretend that they're somehow a lost cause or a, an underdog. An outsider. Yeah, I, I'm an outsider. No, you're part of the establishment, motherfucker. I mean, we're all part of the machine, blah, blah, blah. But you have the reins of power. Don't pretend to me you don't. Don't send me a fundraising email to say, oh boy, you know, we need your money if we're going to make this change happen. You are literally at the levers of power. I don't know what the fuck else you need from me. You want me to work your hands too? Yeah. It's always that, that cancel culture. And, and yet you find these people are always on shows talking about how they've been canceled, which I, can't, oh, which I find I, deeply ironic. God. I was, I was just listening to someone talking about, uh, an interview Russell Brand did where he's just on there talking about how he's been, he's been canceled. This multimillionaire. Not for long. Well, let's hope. But yeah, I, I, I mean, Dave Chappelle is another example, and we won't spend too much time on the political stuff, but like Dave Chappelle is another example. That is someone whose work I used to genuinely enjoy. I haven't really liked anything he's done since he quit Chappelle show in 2004. I don't particularly enjoy any, most of his stand-up. Now, he did the one that I thought was really of the moment. I can't remember what it was called. It was like a date. But aside from that, but, but, but he still has this thing where he's like, well, they're, 
they're trying to stop me. You know, they're trying. Like, no, man. And and it's maddening because Netflix pays them something like twenty million per every special that craps out. You have a platform. You have more money than God. You haven't been canceled. But there's just this attitude that well, you can't say anything anymore. Sure, there is a contingent of outrage merchants who will respond. We have them sometimes. People email me and say, "I can't believe you said this." Eh, I don't give a shit. I, fine. Yeah, I don't, don't listen to the show. That, I, I'm not. I'm not going to play into this. I'm not going to be like, "Oh, I'm so sorry." No, get fucked. And so there are people out there who will try and gin up controversy about anything, and, and I'm sympathetic to that because that sucks. Those people suck. But most of these people are just talking. Most of these guys are just talking out their ass. You've powerful people, who, again, it's it's an industry. I have been canceled. Isn't a fucking industry. I mean, Louis C.K. All the shit he did, he was canceled. They took away his platform. Didn't he, he just won a fucking Grammy last year? Give me a break. The only difference is there's consequences. You can say what you want, but be prepared to get shit over it. Whereas before, people would just ignore it or put up with it or turn the other way. And, you know, it's not just the Me Too movement. There's a lot of things that have been going on for for too long. And people saying absolutely abhorrent things and facing no consequences. You know, you look at any major country in the Western world's television in the 70s and 80s, and some of the shit that was put on for entertainment, and you just look at it and you think, what? Like here with a black and white minstrel show, primetime television in the 1970s. Yeah? Yeah, it's... Things are changing, things always change. That is the nature of of the world. Change is is inevitable. And don't get me wrong, some some of the change I fucking find really annoying. I, you know, the way language evolves, sometimes I think, boy, that sounds stupid, but that's the way language has evolved. You can either roll with it or you can get left behind. And as far as I'm concerned, by and large, people just not being able to, uh, people getting pushback when they say shit. Again, even me, I've said dumb shit. And so people have said to me, hey, that was pretty dumb. And I'll stop and think, oh yeah, you're right. And again, not every time do I think they're right, but I, I don't have to take it on board every time. And again, I'm not operating at the level of, of some of the people we're talking about. But if I can figure it out, motherfucker, you can figure it out. It's like all this stuff with Taylor Swift at the Kansas City Chiefs thing. I mean, I don't like Taylor Swift's music at all, right? But Jesus Christ, anybody would think Travis Kelsey was dating Hitler, the way people are going on. (laughs) You know? What is wrong with people? You've got loads of men going, I don't want to see that in the NFL. What would you would you rather see? You know, somebody like Jerry Jones, who owns the Cowboys, who's got a face like a a worn out leather handbag every five minutes. No, good God, the girl's there supporting her man, and she's interested. You know, and people are going, oh, it's the worst thing ever. Get a grip. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm a hundred percent with you because again, I, I'm not a fan of her music. I it just doesn't do anything for me. If you like it, great, yeah. good for you. I don't. It, I that's fine. I it just it's not for me. I've tried. It just is not. No, she for doesn't me. seem a bad egg. But she doesn't do anything bad. She does a lot of good in the world. She's got a very powerful, positive fan base. You know, the Swifties can rally behind numerous social movements and do a lot of good. And what's wrong with that? I, I was listening to uh, Dear Old Dads the other day. I was listening to one of their patron episodes, and they said something on there that I actually think is really is really accurate. It's th- these groups, these really outraged groups. They hate Taylor Swift. Because she doesn't give a shit what they think, and she has enough power to not have to respond to them whatsoever. She doesn't need their permission to be successful. Exactly. She exists completely outside their ecosystem. Yep. She doesn't need them. 
And so these outraged merchants have to try, they're, they're, it just drives them nuts because they're all like the fucking judge in Blood Meridian. You know, this thing cannot exist if I don't give it permission to exist. And she doesn't give a shit and doesn't need their permission. And I love the fact that she doesn't, that she's got that power. I love that. I love people who can just say, fuck you, I got mine. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't have to bow to your nonsense. Yep. And she is the epitome of that, and I respect the shit out of that. Absolutely, 100%. All power to I'm only annoyed because it's not my team in the Super Bowl. That's the only thing that annoys me about it. <laughs> Release is not the Cowboys. Uh, <laughs> it's all about the coaching. <laughs> this story comes from Rectory Lane in Ampville, Bedfordshire. A lady wrote to me to tell me about the time she spent living in a property in Rectory Lane in Ampville between 1969 and 1976. Ampville is a compact little market town in central Bedfordshire with a very small and picturesque market square which celebrated 800 years of holding a license for a Thursday market in 2019. Our witness bought the house in 1969 with her then-husband and the couple moved in with their three-month-old son. At the time they moved in, the property was partway through a conversion aimed at turning what was the original hayloft into a living space. At that time, there was an open-plan staircase leading up to the hayloft space, and the old wooden hay bale doors were still present. The family were therefore still occupying only the ground floor space, which was one large open-plan room and three smaller rooms, one of which was chosen to be the baby's bedroom. One autumn evening, not long after they moved in, our witness was sitting by a cozy fire with her back to the wooden staircase and facing the small window. Her husband was sitting to her right, and the two were quietly relaxing. Suddenly, she was aware of a strange, cold feeling behind her, and turned to see an indistinct, foggy shape drift down the wooden stairs and out through the small window. Her husband, who was reading at the time, glanced up and exclaimed, What was that? Puzzled, they made inquiries locally the next day as to what it could have been, and were told that when the property was still the stables to the main house, a young stable lad had fallen in love with one of the occupants of the main house. Of course, she was far too above his social station for anything good to come of it, and with a misplaced desperation of youth and unrequited love, he hung himself from the rafters in the hayloft. That autumnal night marked the beginning of the paranormal activity for them, as over the next few years they were frequently disturbed by the sounds of footsteps in the hayloft and the unaccounted-for sound of gunshots from the same space. I can't help but speculate whether the legend was wrong and the lovelorn stable boy shot himself rather than hanged himself. On one occasion, our witness heard a strange sound from the baby's room and went in to find that a picture had inexplicably fallen from the wall where it was hanging and was completely covering her young son where he was sleeping. This in itself made her feel uncomfortable, but had it not been for the other occurrences, she probably would have just dismissed it as a fluke that the picture fell from the wall. However, by this time her son was starting to grow and toddle, and one day he suddenly fell down the stairs. Although his mother fortuitously managed to catch him before any real harm was done, he was very distressed, saying to her over and over that the man had pushed him. She mentioned this to the lady they had bought the property from, with whom she had remained fast friends. Her friend was a bit puzzled by this because she said that her own young son had also fallen down the stairs there and kept saying his older brother had pushed him, even though that was not the case. Over the years the family lived there, they continued to hear the footsteps and gunshots, and the sounds were heard by other family members and babysitters as well. Our witness's own mother would complain that she could not sleep at all when she stayed over due to the disturbances. 
Paul, of all the stories we've told on this show, I think one that has constant gunshots is probably the most upsetting. Uh, that would be like trying to sleep with a white noise generator set to Manchester. Yes, especially in Bedfordshire, which is one of the UK's sleepiest counties. It's got bed in the name. It's legally obligated to be quiet. <laughs> yeah, it's not the most raucous of places, to be fair, especially some of it. It's very, um, it's very quaint. It's a typical international view of the United Kingdom sleepy villages and churches and things. There's a lot of Bedfordshire that's just like that. I don't know much about Bedfordshire, obviously, but I was doing a little bit of a reading and not far away from Amphill, about 20 minute drive in Bedfordshire proper, there is a complex. It's called the uh, Aspects Leisure Park in Bedford. And it has a, a haunted movie theater, which is said to be haunted by a monk, as I'm sure you know. I, th- th- folks, when I'm, tell- I'm telling you most of this, I just, if there's a UK ghost story, I assume Paul knows. But what I, I love about this is they've got this, this new agriplex or this new plex, whatever the fuck it's called, and it's, it's built on an old priory. And only in England, I think, would that be an issue. Over here, we would just knock down another forest. But in England, you've got this massive cineplex or cineworld, I think it is, that, uh, and all these other things going on, and it's just on an old priory, you know, where a bunch of monks used to do whatever it is monks do. Yeah, I think it was one of the ones torn down by Henry VIII. Oh, okay. One of the numerous ones he looted and then set fire to. Right. Interestingly, the article I was reading about it did not mention that part. There's loads of them about. <laughs> to be fair, it's not, it's not an unusual thing, you know. It's what happens when you stop somebody getting divorced. He goes, burns priories down. But yes, it's always, it's, it's always struck me because one of the houses I lived in in Sheffield, we had numerous strange incidents on our staircase where we were all pushed down the stairs. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even the skeptic that thought we were talking rubbish ended up getting pushed down. And it was very odd. You would feel a physical shove in your back on the top of the stairs and you'd tumble down. It was one of those old houses with Artex, if you know what Artex is. Isn't that the horse from Neverending Story? <laughs> Artex was, was a, <laughs> a design cult. <laughs> okay. Where basically people would create sort of spikes with plaster on, and cover their walls and ceilings with it. So you'd basically have sort of a rough feel to it, which was great until you grazed it and it cut your arm open and stuff. Yeah, this just sounds uh, like having walls made of knives. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't understand. And it was a big thing, seventies and eighties, and then by the nineties, people then realised what a shitter it was to remove, because <laughs> you basically had to either sand the walls down, or just strip it back to the brickwork and replaster it all. You couldn't do anything with it because it was just, but it was, and then bits of brick off, and you'd have like bald bits of plaster poking out and stuff. So yeah, so you you get scratches on your arms. Yeah, it was it was great. Who who came up with this design? Torquemada. This is insane. <laughs> Good Lord. Take it that didn't take off in North America then. No, I don't think we have punishment rooms outside of Saw films. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yes. Also, we have an eyeball vacuum here in the lounge, uh, just in case, you know, <laughs> John Kramer stops by. Uh, yeah. Flock, flock wallpaper and Artex. Two of the worst things to discover if you buy a house. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And I've heard a lot of dumb things, Paul. (laughs) 
Yeah. So yeah, and there's always a thing we've I've spoke to Ruth about this. There's a lot of you 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 when you sit down and start to look at a lot of hauntings. There's a large number of them that occur on staircases or stairs. And you begin to think, well, what, what does that mean? Why? I mean, obviously, if you think, if you live in a house with a staircase, even if you don't realise it, it's probably one of the most used areas of your house, whether you're going upstairs or coming downstairs. You are always utilising the staircase at all times of day and night. So is it, is it because it's a busy place? Or is it, is it something deeper than that? Is it showing the, the journey between levels or parts of the, the universe we have yet to comprehend and the stairs personifies that? Who knows? We head north of the border now to Air in Scotland and Park Circus. One correspondent told me about the experiences of her brother and his family. My brother and his wife moved into a converted Georgian house in Air with their two young daughters around 2000. They lived there for around 15 years, but moved out when the marriage sadly ended. During the time they were there, there were regular bouts of paranormal activity, but with brief interludes of time when nothing would happen and the house would be quieter in a spiritual sense. She explained that once the family moved in, the first thing that began to occur was that the fire alarm would start to sound whenever the family entered the house. Repeated checks on its workings could never find anything wrong with it. Her sister-in-law always felt the house had a presence within it, right from the first day they moved in. But her first real experience came a few months later one day, when she came home from work. None of the other family members were yet home, so the property was empty when she walked in. Fed up with the inexplicable fire alarm antics, she addressed the presence she felt there, telling it she was happy to share her home with it, but pleased to stop trying to frighten the family. The fire alarm never malfunctioned again. Sometime later, my correspondent's children and their cousins were playing in the bedroom, when a piece of wood from the sash window suddenly broke free and fell into the middle of the group of children playing on the floor. The odd thing was, though, it didn't come from them from the direction of the window, as one might expect if it had somehow broken free and blown in, but was dropped on them from above. Its trajectory suggested that it had broken free, floated across the room, and then was dropped on them when above them. On another occasion, her niece suffered an instance of sleepwalking, and was found standing in the dining room facing the mirror, and repeating into it over and over again. I want my life back. Although her parents led her back to bed, her mother admitted to feeling very spooked by the incident and the strange words. During the whole time that the family lived there, the three daughters refused to be alone in the building at any time. My correspondent said she always felt uncomfortable when she went to the top floor where the bathroom was and where the bedrooms were. This was particularly the case in the little box room that the youngest daughter used. This child would not sleep without a nightlight from a very young age and frequently complained that she heard voices outside her room. This was corroborated by her cousin who said that when she stayed over she could hear men's voices whispering at night on the upstairs landing area outside the bedrooms. 
One of the most disturbing events happened to my correspondent's sister-in-law one night when she was in bed with the light on. Her husband, my correspondent's brother, was downstairs still. She suddenly caught sight of something out of the corner of her eye. She sat in bed and on turning to look fully was horrified to see a man in her room. Her first rational thought that it must be an intruder and she kept silent because she thought if she cried out and her husband came up unawares, he might get attacked by the man she could now see who seemed to be wearing a red-coloured smoking-type jacket. He was holding his chest and started to walk towards the door. She turned to watch him go and saw him collapse to the floor. By now, the unreality of what she was seeing was starting to dawn on her, and she sat there for a long moment before plucking up the courage to peer over the end of the bed to see where he had fallen. There was nothing there. Not long after that incident, at around 2003, my correspondent and family were visiting, and as they all congregated on the landing to say their goodbyes at the end of their stay, her four-year-old son just blurted out of the blue in his sweet little innocent voice, You've got ghosts here, to his uncle. As my witness described, by this time other things must have been happening and we didn't discuss events anymore. My brother caught my eye and shook his head, meaning, let's not talk about it. Much later, not long before they left the house, the brother and his family went out to a pub where they were holding a quiz night just around the corner from their home. Whilst out, the sister-in-law realised she had left her purse at home and returned to the house to quickly collect it. She said as soon as she walked into the house it felt menacing and the feeling intensified as she walked towards the stairs. Every step nearer the stairs made her more and more scared. She said the atmosphere was so thick and somehow busy that she actually felt like she was in danger. She couldn't muster up enough courage to go up the stairs and she felt like they wanted to kill her. She fled from the house and at first it was genuinely felt as though she was being chased by a crowd of people. She was terrified, but her panicked flight took her past the church not quite opposite their house. And here the feeling of being chased left her abruptly and she immediately felt calmer and peaceful. When I asked around locally whether anyone else knew of a haunting in the street, one local witness came forward to tell me that some 35 years ago, one of the houses at one end of the road lay empty for a while and was known as the haunted house. I wonder if there was any connection. I gotta tell you, man, that quote, the thing the kid said, I want my life back, that gave me chills. <laughs> Good Lord. Over and over as well. Into a mirror. Can you imagine coming on that at three in the morning? Yeah, I've seen some strange things at that time, but that would freak me out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I think I might actually take the guy with the machete over that. <laughs> I, I, I told you in the patron bonus, I, I just finished reading this book about the uh, the 90s, 2000s hardcore band Leftover Crack, or I don't know, it's a fucking crust punk band, whatever. But uh, they talked in the book about how, you know, they their shows got pretty rowdy and they could be quite difficult, or at least the singer himself could be quite difficult. And they talked about buying machetes to protect themselves. And they said, oh, they were super cheap at the hardware store. They were, you know, at the time seven, eight bucks. And, you know, it's really hard to cut yourself with one of them. And I thought, are we talking about different things? Does machete mean something different to crust punks? Or maybe we just have different definitions of sharp? Because I'm pretty sure you can cut someone with a machete. 
Yeah, they're not no they're they're heavy objects, but they're not exactly blunt either. Yeah, that's it. Like I understand it you gotta swing it to really to make some do with it, but I thought describing it as a, a not sharp thing, that that seems like underselling it a little. I think any bladed object is sharp enough if you wield it with enough downward force. Yeah. But anyways, this that's nothing to do with ghosts. Um No, not yet. Well, yeah, yeah. This is the, the, the it's 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 how it's how to make a ghost. My latest show, <laughs> How to Make a Ghost. It's technically a true crime show. The story takes place on Pembroke Road in Baldock, Hertfordshire. I spoke with a witness, Jake, not his real name, who told me several stories of his encounters with the supernatural which appear in this book. When Jake and his partner got married, they moved into a house in Pembroke Road in Baldock. They were attracted to the town because of its quaint, peaceful, slightly quirky atmosphere with buildings from numerous eras and a charming high street filled with eclectic shops rather than the usual high street fare. The house they chose to buy was a semi-detached Victorian-era house, which Jake felt was very welcoming, with a pleasant atmosphere right from the day they moved in. They made friends with quite a few of their neighbors, and one day, when chatting after a talk at the Baldock Festival by a local author on the supernatural, Damien O'Dell, one of the neighbors pointed out that the story in one of Damien's books actually pertained to their house. Apparently, a previous set of occupants from the mid-1980s onwards had encountered some issues in the house. A pair of trousers left on the sofa had been seen to fold themselves, a teddy bear was knocked over by an unseen hand, and footsteps were often heard when no one was there. Jake says they have never experienced any activity like this, but there was one occasion when his partner came home from work and walked down their side alley to the door they usually used to enter the property, and in doing so thought they saw their brother, who happened to be visiting at the time, pottering about in the kitchen. The distance between the view through the window to actually stepping through the doorway into the kitchen is only a matter of two or three footsteps. Yet on turning the corner, they were astonished to find that there was no sign of anyone in the kitchen at all. The brother, it turned out, was actually sitting in the lounge with the door firmly closed, something he could not in any way have achieved in the space of time afforded by the time it took to just take three quick steps between the kitchen window and the kitchen doorway. On another occasion, Jake was sitting on the sofa in the lounge, the lounge was at the very front of the property, and like many Victorian houses, actually had a street door opening directly from it. Jake's sofa was placed in front of this door, preventing it from being used, in order to create a bit more space in the otherwise quite compact room. From where he sat, he had the door into the dining room in the periphery of his vision, and would every now and then think he saw movement in the dining room out of the corner of his eye, even though he knew he was alone at home that day. Suddenly, there was a slight ping noise and Jake found himself hit by a 20p coin, which appeared to have been thrown at him by an unsee hand. On other occasions, there would be cold spots, which seemed to walk through the bathroom, and one day there was a loud bang on the window, which startled Jake as he was in there at the time. He assumed at first that a bird must have hit the window, as they sometimes do, as a massive crack had appeared right across the pane. Closer inspection, however, revealed that the crack was actually on the inside pane of the double-glazed unit. This suggests that it was possible something hit the glass from inside the room. Jake pointed out that it was also possible the glass cracked because of a temperature fluctuation or some such other natural cause, but he hadn't noticed that it was a day when there was a particularly great differential between the temperature inside or outside, nor did he notice any other mundane possible causes. Jake did ask the previous owner of the house whether they had ever experienced anything there, and was told that the daughter of the household had reported seeing a dark figure standing at the top of the basement steps which would put it about two meters away from where the figure in the kitchen had been seen by Jake's partner. Two visitors to the house, independently of one another, have also reported sensing the spirit of a boy in the house. 
Jake contacted me a second time a few months later, tell me there had been another occurrence. He had decided to try and take an arty photograph of his beloved older car parked outside their house earlier that evening. It was already dark outside, and he wanted to capture a shot of the car framed by the leaves of the front hedge, with lighting on it, to pick the car out in the darkness. To achieve this, he switched on their bright outside light. He was using the sophisticated camera on his iPhone, and took the first shot using the camera's built-in flash mechanism. The resulting picture had too much light in it, and didn't achieve the effect he was looking for, so he turned the camera's flash mechanism off and took another shot, knowing the camera was capable of using the ambient light from their outside light to provide enough illumination. However, just as he took the shot, the outside light turned itself off, resulting in a photograph with virtually no light on the car. Frustrated, he took a photo of the light switch and sent it to me to show how it had been thrown from the on position into the off position in that split second. Jake says that having become friendly with their neighbors in the street, they found that other properties also have supernatural visitors. One couple reported that on several occasions, they found their kitchen taps turned fully on, and once they even came downstairs in the morning to find all of the dining chairs had been placed on top of the table, very much like the famous scene from the film Poltergeist. Another neighbor has reported seeing a Roman soldier in their garden, and certainly it is a matter of record that there have been nearly 2,000 Roman-era burials discovered within the town limits of Baldock. Jake was also told that on nearby Jackson Street, one of the houses was apparently plagued for a few years by knocking noises, which could neither be pinned down nor stopped. Eventually, during some renovation work on the heating system, a skeleton was found under the hallway floorboards. As is routine with such matters, the police were involved until it was determined that the bones dated to the end of the 19th century. The knocking noise stopped after that, but it is always possible that they might have been attributable to the newer heating system and pipes. There is also another property nearby where someone glanced out their window, to see a group of silent people standing in our garden for a brief moment. And there's a lot going on there, Paul. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there's a lot happening there. There's a lot of uh, throwbacks to some other famous cases and strange things going on. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a hectic house. No kidding. And are you familiar with, I mean, the chair stacking thing? That's just actually, I mean, she mentions the film Poltergeist, but that seems like just a Poltergeist thing, is, is that not? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't happen often. I mean, that usually is reported in extremely active poltergeist cases because oh, okay. um, it's it's not a, a typical calling card. I think because it's in the film, it's become a cliched thought of what what happens in all poltergeist cases. And they're all, you know, they're all widely different. You know, you look at, for example, Humpty Doo in Australia, Wherever it was, used to leave messages in pebbles, which is very rarely oh. reported in other cases. Some stacked chairs. You've got the dancing gloves in Pontefract. Coin throwings, probably one of the most common things you would find in, in poltergeist cases. Apports, those types of things. You know, I, I, was, uh, I was listening recently to uh, a two-part interview that Travis Watson did on a show. And uh, he, he, he was talking about something which I, I can't remember if he talked about it on your show or when he was on your show or not. Was he talking about the mists when he was on your show? I can't remember. Yeah, we did Mysteries in the Mist. That's it. Yeah. So he's, he's got one now where he, uh, his latest book, he sort of approaches, as I'm sure you're, you're aware, Bigfoot phenomenon as a different manifestation of poltergeist activity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, I'm interviewing him in a couple of weeks. Oh, very cool. I'm really eager to hear that conversation because it, he makes, a, I think he makes some interesting points that 
a lot of what we call poltergeist, or pardon me, a lot of what we call Bigfoot phenomenon, the stuff where you're not actually seeing a figure, if it were to happen inside, it would be referred to as poltergeist activity. Yeah, you sent me a copy of the book, so I'm going to have a good read of it and, and have a look at it. I think it's one of those things that people try and explain any phenomenon with one explanation in certain circumstances. I mean, whenever I hear a, a case of, of something chucking coins about, it always reminds me of one of my favourite ones, which is, a rather, which is a lovely poltergeist case, which happened in Wales in a mower repair shop. Okay. Which was run by two brothers, uh, the Matthews brothers, I think they were. And they had this repair shop and they started having really weird paranormal occurrences happening and it ended up becoming quite a, quite a regular poltergeist case and uh, it started leaving them money oh, okay. <laughs> all the time. So they ended up calling it Pete, Pete the poltergeist. And, and eventually they had it, it manifested and it, it was a little boy and it ended up being sat on top of one of the shelves in the repair shop for a, for a brief moment or two. And I think two people saw it. There's a young boy with blonde hair. Also available to view if you can track it down on, on YouTube in an episode of Strange But True from the mid-90s. Oh, okay. Which obviously features first-hand witnesses, so it interviews both brothers uh, and one of their wives. And it went on for about six years. Jesus, that's a long time. But it gets better. Because the brothers eventually reached retirement age and decided they were going to sell up. So they, uh, they sold the shop. Within a couple of weeks or two, Fred, one of the brothers, realised that uh, Pete had taken a shine to him anyway and had moved in with him oh. and, and gone to his house. And so they started noticing the same kind of things happening there. I mean, it was, it was a, a remarkable case because it, it didn't stop. You know, the local news companies and reporters would come round and it would happen. Things would be throwing, flying about the repair shop and whack, banging on things and people would find 20 pence pieces and 50 pence pieces and pound coins and things. And screws and nuts and bolts are all whizzing about. And so he, he ended up being there and they were fine with him. But then they just kind of thought, well, we've got to let him go. Um, and so I think Fred consulted a, a, a local medium who said that he needed to smash or break anything that he believed Pete had moved about. And he did it a couple of times, and that put an end to the haunting. Really? And that was that. Yeah, it was in the 90s as well, so it's not that long ago. Did they say why that they thought that would be effective? Uh, no. <laughs> Fair enough. It's not something I've come across very often. I've heard people say, oh, you need to get rid of things they've touched or whatever, but I've right. never heard of smashing things. And I suppose that only works if it's something you can smash. Because to be fair, if I came home and my telly were in middle of the room, I'm not smashing my telly. Up. <laughs> yeah, the poltergeist can stay. Yeah. He can stay. As long as he doesn't change the football when it's on, it's fine. Our final story is once again from Bedfordshire in the town of Biggleswade on Hitchin Street. One lady I interviewed told me about her experience in a house on Hitchin Street in Biggleswade. She and her first husband moved into the property in 1985. It was a quaint little cottage which they were renting in a quiet residential street. It was a mid-terraced, two-up, two-down type cottage, so common across Britain, very small but quite neat with a pebble-dashed frontage. When they moved in, she straight away began to wonder if they'd done the right thing renting the place, because it has an oppressive, 
gloomy atmosphere about it. To try and make it feel more welcoming, the young couple immediately set about redecorating the place in bright, airy colours. However, even as each room steadily became lighter and better looking with their efforts, the gloomy atmosphere persisted, and the young couple found that often, when they were home, they would end up bickering and fighting with each other, whereas away from the property, they would feel perfectly happy in one another's company. Their bedroom was over the front room, facing the street. It had a built-in cupboard along one wall, with an old-fashioned wooden door, and they placed a large sideboard along one of the other walls. In the centre of the sideboard, there was a huge freestanding mirror in a heavy frame with big, chunky feet. It was heavy enough that it took two people to lift and manoeuvre it. The young housewife liked to collect perfume bottles, and had quite an impressive display, which she proudly arranged on her sideboard in front of and to both sides of the huge mirror. One night, as they lay in bed asleep, they were awakened by a strange noise, and her husband sat up in bed, moving his head from the pillow as he did so. Seconds later, the mirror crashed down across his pillow upside down. Had he not moved, he could have been quite badly hurt. When they inspected the damage, they found the true extent of the bizarre nature of what had just occurred. On the sideboard, you could clearly see where the bottles which had stood either side of the mirror had been pushed aside, as if someone had needed the space to get their hands on the mirror. The bottles lined up so prettily in front of the mirror were all completely undisturbed, and the mirror itself had landed upside down across where his head had been. This meant in order to get from point A to point B, the mirror had to have been lifted up and over the bottles, turned upside down, and then dropped with such force that it broke the heavy wooden frame. My witness told me that she still has nightmares today about the built-in cupboard in the room. It had such a bad feeling emanating from it. They kept mundane things like suitcases and Christmas decorations in there, and every time they opened it, they would find that the contents had been completely rearranged. Sometimes they would hear scrabbling noises from inside, and a cold feeling would often seep out into the room from it. Eventually, the couple called their reverend in and asked him for help with the property. He visited, and physically shivered as soon as he entered the house. He said he could feel that someone had died at the foot of the stairs. He thought that the original owner of the cottage was haunting it, and was unhappy that other people were living in his home. The reverend warned them they would never be able to live happily there. They only ended up staying for a total of 11 months before deciding that they couldn't stand it anymore. They moved out as soon as they could find somewhere else to rent, and when I asked locally for any corroboration, I was told that one gentleman used to live on Hitchin Street, and often heard the sound of a horse galloping down the street outside during evenings or late at night. Even though there were clearly no horses around. First things first, I, I cannot possibly imagine a more British town name than Biggleswade. <laughs> Wooten Bassett. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah maybe. That those are the only things that might be able to top Biggleswade. <laughs> I, I found a story online that I thought was, was kind of funny. And, and I mean, I'll, I'll link to the actual blog post. It's, it's from uh, Natalie, I think Doig mm -hmm. is how you pronounce her last name, but she writes the Happy Salmon blog. And she has a story about a haunted store in Biggleswade. And I guess she actually got up on stage and was invited to tell the story at a live uh, Uncanny show. And I'm not going to get into the specifics of the haunting. Folks can, can check the link. But I just wanted to say that it happened in a store called Pound Stretcher. 
Yeah. I am convinced that you guys have just been engaged in a long prank on us here in 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 the colonies with these names because pound stretcher 1000% sounds like the kind of thing you order from adamandeve.com. <laughs> it's a very popular chain. Is it? So they're still around. Oh yeah, pound stretcher. We've got two. We've got pound stretcher and poundland. So poundland I'm familiar with, which also sounds like an adult film title, but pound stretcher again just sounds like some sort of implement of, uh, of, of, well, I won't say, I won't say it because sometimes children listen to the show. Although I don't know how good that's going to do them given how many motherfuckers I've dropped on this episode. <laughs> Pound stretcher came first. That's what I hear. <laughs> Essentially, you can buy anything in these shops. Anything. Crisps, crockery, clothes. A lot of it isn't a pound, but I think it's more about it makes your pound stretch further. Yeah, that, that makes the, sense. Yeah is the uh, indication of, the, of, of what the name was referring to. But yes, you can, uh, you can find all kinds of, uh, of bargains and they are notable for their, for their fine ranges of crisps and biscuits. And according to the Happy Salmon blog, they're ghosts, at least in Biggleswade. <laughs> I would not be surprised because a lot of them took over old units of chains that had gone bust. So I wouldn't be surprised that there's a few of them that are haunted because they, they just took over old buildings. England. Haunted as hell. Even the pound stretcher. Even the pound stretcher. Available at Adam and Eve. I'm just kidding. They're not a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is going to do it. We hope you've enjoyed this uh, introductory trip through the work of Ruth Roper Wilde. Again, all this material is taken from her book, These Haunted Times, Volume 1, with permission, of course. We'll be featuring more material from Ruth's other books in the next two episodes. And again, at some point shortly thereafter, we'll be talking to her on Talk Spooky to Me, something I'm very much looking forward to. We'll tell you in the C segment about where you can find more of her books. But for now, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with our Ghost Force shoutouts. Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not gonna try and talk you out of self-harming right now because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be. It's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. 
That's 988. In the UK, the number to call is 116123 or text SHOUT, that's S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, please know that we've both been where you are and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. The Ghost Story Guys are... Luke Greensmith, who helps us find our stories and is the host of the Luke Lore podcast, available on streaming platforms everywhere. Tanya Downing, who assists with editing and manages our Facebook community. Sarah Kent, who manages our Reddit community. Adam Lynch, who edits our YouTube video and is the host of the Weekly Creep podcast with Dulce. Joseph Camo, who helps manage our YouTube account and is, of course, host of the Cardinal Rule on YouTube and is my co-host on Weird Together. Available everywhere fine podcasts live. Our paranormal conductor is Mr. Brennan Stoll. And of course, my co-host is the one, the only, the inimitable, Paul Bestel, the paranormal Johnny Carson himself, host of Mysteries and Monsters. Paul, what's coming up on Eminem? I've got a episode featuring on the weird and wonderful strange things that happen over winter with Linda Radish. Before I welcome back another of my co-hosts, Mr. Chad Lewis, who's not been on for nearly six months, so uh, we better get him on before he starts missing me as we dive <laughs> into the Dogman phenomena. Oh, very cool. Dogman and Chad, that's a hell of a combo. Yeah, yeah, I've never done a Dogman episode properly. And where can everyone find you online? You can find Mysteries and Monsters across all social media platforms and podcast sites. All right, I am largely the truth on Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd. And you can find my other show, my horror movie review podcast, Weird Together, everywhere. Find podcasts live. As we said at the top, this show exists because of our Patreon subscribers and Apple Podcast subscribers. I do this full time. I do a little bit of a little bit of work on the side just to uh, to make ends meet. But primarily, I do this full time, and that is because of our subscribers. And so without you, this show simply would not go. And if you'd like to join that team, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. Or sign up to GSD Premium via Apple Podcasts. And that gets you not only the ad-free feed we mentioned at the top, that also gets you access to all kinds of bonus material. It gets you access to Host Adventures, which is your bi-weekly trip through my brain, where I just kind of ramble about whatever's going on in my life. You get the real centerpiece of the whole thing, which is the bonus conversations between me and Paul. We just did a Q&A for patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers. It was about 85 minutes in, in total, and there was some wild stuff in there, including someone who asked, uh, Morgan, I believe it was, who asked, what kind of cryptid erotica would you write if you could write it? And uh, that, co- that question will forever haunt my brain. And you can hear our answers to that in the bonus conversations every major episode gets a bonus conversation. So the <laughs> bonus chat for 181 will be about probably about 40 minutes long. So if you like that part of the show, you like me and Paul Yakin, that is but one of many things <laughs> you find by joining up at patreon.com slash ghost story guys or via Apple podcasts. 
And of course, people who subscribe at the $20 level, they're part of a little something we like to call Ghost Force. <laughs> That's right. Patrons of the $20 level and above get thanked here in Ghost Force every second episode because you're crazy and by God we love you for it. This time around, the members of Ghost Force are... Ethan Zaragon. Kirkling Skull. Carrie Lambertus. Cheesy Thoughts. Cheryl Baker. Crazy Mom. CT. Anthony Michaud. Generic Bob. Hannah Brown. Hannah Siemens. Hillary DeSassur. Jade Morgus. Jason R. Slaughter. 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 Jennifer Mullen. Joseph Como. Caitlin Park. Kimberly Hansen. Malevolent Clamato. Mara Noriega. Mark Semler. Merlin Hansen. Michael Carney. Nicola. Peter Guns. 08.5. Rebecca Brink. Rockin' Ronnie Shenanigans. Shannon Steyer. Stefan Schwaldfeld. And Trent Cannon. <laughs> You are the few. You are the spooky. You are Ghost Force. <laughs> for real, guys, thank you so, so much. We are uh, deeply grateful for all of our subscribers, everyone who supports us financially, but Ghost Force, you guys are especially nuts. And we really love you for it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you'd like to have your name read out in that part of the show, Head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys and sign up at the Ghost Force level. All right, my friend, do you have any guest spots coming up? Uh, yes, I've recorded one with Jason Pentrell for the Seven Ages patron, which was great fun. And Jason very kindly sent me a copy of his book, which arrived yesterday from South Carolina. <laughs> very cool. And that, that's uh, only for, for patrons of that show, correct? I believe so, yes. But we had a really okay. nice chat uh, both before during and after the recording. Great fun. And if you want to pick up any Ghost Story Guys merch, head to our website at ghoststoryguys.com. That's ghoststoryguys.com. You'll find all kinds of cool stuff there. We've got uh, t-shirts, travel mugs, stickers, lots of great designs. And you will also get a personalized thank you video. Those are all caught up now for a while. And they, were, they were backing up because the app had logged me out and I did not know it. I just thought no one was buying our stuff. But sales had been happening. And yes. You will get a personalized thank you video from me, sadly. It won't be from both of us until the next time we're in the same place. But uh, still, again, that's ghoststoryguys.com for all your merchandise needs. If you can, we would appreciate you rating and reviewing the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, everywhere you can, really. Helps bump the numbers, maybe get a few more eyes on the show. Tell your friends about the show if you like what we do. We're always looking to grow our community. If you've got a story to share, we would love to hear from you. We're at ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram as The Ghost Story Guys. We're on Facebook as Ghost Story Guys, and we also have a group called The Ghost Story Guys Finally Made a Group. Shout out again to our composer, Rainy Days for Ghosts. Rainy Days for Ghosts is a project of film journalist and composer Harper Smith. You can find more from Harper at rainydaysforghosts.bandcamp.com or by searching for Rainy Days for Ghosts or Street Witch on all your music platforms. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kursov of Pizzanta Music. Find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. Also, if you like the stories on this show, make sure to check out Ruth Roper Wild's work on Amazon. 
She has a series, These Haunted Times, from which these stories are taken, and the stories we'll be sharing on the upcoming two shows represent the smallest fraction of what Ruth has collected. It is a truly incredible feat, what she has done, and you can either buy copies, physical or digital, or you can read them using Kindle Unlimited, and uh, you're not going to get a better deal if you like ghost stories, folks. Believe you me. And again, that's Ruth Roper Wild, These Haunted Times, Volumes 1 to 4. Uh, she, what's some of her other stuff, Paul? She's got the Haunted... Uh, she did the Haunted Almanac, which is essentially a paranormal calendar. So if you fancy trying to catch one of the famous anniversary ghosts in the United Kingdom, you can plan a trip to see if they turn up on a specific day, which I think is probably her most underrated book. It's quite interesting, actually. That's a um, fabulous fucking idea. Yeah. Her first book was The Ghosts of Marston's Vale, which I think is a local area near where she lives. That was the first one she did. And she's done two roadmap of British ghosts, which essentially is dealing with road ghosts and haunted lanes and the like. And those are tomes, are they not? Oh, yeah. I mean, the last time we were speaking, I, I think we're trying to work out how many accounts she's now collected. And it must be in the thousands. I think Ruth thought she'd be in the hundreds. But I think with eight books now, she's clearly into four figures easily. Oh, I would be shocked if it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah, she is. She's she truly is a, a, an unsung hero of, of ghost story archivism. I, I just think that, uh, I mean, as popular as she is, I still think she has, uh, she has yet to get her, her proper due because this is like, this is historical kind of work. I, I genuinely believe. Oh, absolutely. I think it's, as you say, it's a, it's a modern chronicle of, of the paranormal into, into the modern day, really. And I think it should be celebrated and Books like that are incredibly important because it, it gets us away from the old-fashioned stories of Anne Boleyn running around castles and headless horsemen. And one of Ruth's great strengths is that she'll hear some of these stories and then she'll investigate it and find out that actually that's not the reason why there's a ghost because people will always, you know, a tale of a tale or it becomes an urban myth and it kind of moves away from what the actual haunting is and people try and attach it to some historical figure, even though the evidence ends up not supporting that. So then you think, well, who is it then? Yeah, it's again, it's, it's great work. I cannot say enough good things about it. And thankfully, with two more episodes based on Ruth's work, we'll have plenty of time to sing her praises. So again, that's Ruth Roper Wilde, These Haunted Times, Volume 1 through 4, available via Amazon, in Kindle, or in paperback, and uh, on the next two episodes of Ghost Story, guys, as well. And I guess that's going to do it. We'll be back next week, but until then, into the darkness we go. As a child, I uh, performed as a television host over here called, we had a, a program called This Is Your Life, which was hosted oh, by yeah. a, a, an Irish gentleman called Eamon Andrews. So we, we did a surprise because one of the teachers was leaving at junior school and uh, I was nominated to play Eamon Andrews. So I had to do a very poor Irish accent there oh, uh, no. at nine years old. And I think that's the last time I've ever performed with that particular accent. <laughs>
It's because you've been chased by, ever since you've been chased by the ghost of Eamon de Valera. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's quite funny because we actually had, by this point, we'd started to get a few people moving to the area from Northern Ireland, obviously during the, the heights of the Troubles. So a lot of, um, a lot of people were, were relocating to the UK. And uh, we'd got Irish, <laughs> we got some Irish kids in the school. I can't think of anything more quintessentially British than oh. they gave the role of an Irishman to an Englishman. <laughs> Shayla's wheels. Oh, I remember those ads. Struth. I used to sing it to Nick. The Sheila's folks. It, we're getting way off the plot here, but Sheila's wheels was uh, a, a car. A, it was used car company. It was a car insurance. That's what it was. Company based in the UK that advertised themselves as a bunch of dizzy Australian women, um, and tailored their products for women. Yeah, that's what. Yeah. Yeah, their jingle, and I won't sing it, but their jingle was, for Bonza car insurance deals, why don't you call Sheila's wheels or something like that? It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was terrible, but it wormed its way into your, into your brain and, and will likely be the last thing I remember before my consciousness blinks out. <laughs> Mysteries and monsters snuffed out before it began. <laughs> there was no mystery there. <laughs> he picked the wrong arcade. Just monsters. Sheffield, just monsters. <laughs> I'm, I'm listening to Linda Perry's What's Up on the radio that my fucking interface is picking up. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> um, is that me or you? Not me. Mm -mm. Fuck. <laughs> there we oh, go. It's gone there. This next story comes from Pembroke Road in Baldock near Hartford. Oh, no, fuck. Dude, would you like me to leave that in the show? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe they could fly us in for the Ghostbusters premiere. I will, I will literally, I will shine Dan Aykroyd's shoes. I have no shame. <laughs> I know he likes honey. He can eat it off my body. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> what would I do for a Klondike bar? Whatever it takes. <laughs>